Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The second reading is 1 Corinthians 15. And of this passage, we are reading verse, I am reading verses 17 to 34. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. For our series in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, a series asking the question, is it worth being a Christian? Is it worth living as a Christian when it's costly? And a series giving the answer, yes, because of the resurrection. 
That's what these four weeks say. It's worth being a Christian or living as a Christian in a costly way because of the resurrection. We didn't plan this series to coincide with the global pandemic of coronavirus, but it's kind of the Lord that we're here in this passage as we face all the anxieties on our hearts and minds. So why don't I pray? I know we have prayed with Andy. Why don't I pray thanking God for this passage as we turn to it? Our Father in heaven, we do have many worries and concerns on our hearts and minds, but we pray now you'd still our hearts to listen to your voice and be strengthened and encouraged. We pray that the wonderful truths in this chapter will give us great confidence in a troubling world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. How much of life is driven by FOMO? FOMO is fear of missing out. If you don't know that acronym, fear of missing out. How much of life is driven by that? I'm actually not sure this is what's on our minds just at this moment, but I think it's important, so I'll say a brief bit about that before I get to my new introduction. Just briefly, so much of life is driven by fear of missing out because our culture believes you only live once. That's YOLO. You only live once. When you think about how people make decisions or whether they're paralyzed by decisions, there's such a fear that if I go down this path, I might miss out on a better path. And behind that fear, driving that fear, is this worry you only live once. And of course, the advertisers scream that to us, don't they? That's how they sell products. You've only got one life, better make the most of it. You've only got one body, better improve it and enjoy it. Better, you've only got one shot to, to enjoy physical stuff, whether it's travel or food or sport or sex or money, you better grab it while you can. It's why people make bucket lists, 99 things to do before we die. And if Christians adopt that attitude, not only can it paralyze decision-making, I mean, how do I choose on a job or a course or a house or a spouse, a move, or how to use my retirement or how to use my gap year? How do I choose because I'm paralyzed by a worry, is this the best thing? Fear of missing out, but worse than that, it can cripple gospel work. Who's going to follow Jesus' command to lose our lives for the gospel when we've only got one life to lose? Who's going to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, as he's told us to do in 1 Corinthians? Sharing the good news of salvation, investing gifts and resources to build up God's eternal church, if that means letting go of some of the stuff in this life, some of my precious time, which is ticking, some of my precious money, which I could use for other things. FOMO, fear of missing out, drives much of our decisions, and it's, it's driven in, in itself by YOLO, you only live once. That was how I was going to start. Actually, at the moment, I don't think bucket lists are on our minds, are they? The casualty list is. Whether for yourself or for others, the more frightening the news gets of coronavirus, 
the more the fear grows that it really could hit us hard or our loved ones hard. I found myself thinking that this week as I've been praying for our family, praying for vulnerable individuals we know and love. See, actually, far more concerning than just FOMO, the fear of missing out, is FOD, the fear of death itself. The fear of death itself. What does the Bible say about that? What's it got to say to us when we actually stare death in the face? And I'm aware for some of us in this church family, possibly listening online rather than here, this isn't just a hypothetical question. It's not just a kind of will it, will it come by in the next few months. For some of us, it's a question right now as we care for those who are seriously ill. What does the Bible have to say in the face of the fear of death? In the face of the claim, you only live once, so you better not miss out on the good stuff. Let me tell you a few things the Bible doesn't say. Firstly, unlike our culture, or much of our culture, the Bible does not hide death away from discussion. It doesn't hide death in the small print, suppressed from polite conversation, tucked away, out of sight in society, where most people don't have to see it or think about it. The Bible doesn't say, let's all pretend it's not really there, that it's not really coming. I think that's one of the reasons why an unavoidable crisis, a really large-scale crisis, can shock us so much. We didn't see it coming. We, we weren't thinking that human beings are actually pretty fragile. The Bible doesn't suppress talk of death. It faces up to it, honestly, squarely, repeatedly, clearly. 1 Corinthians 15 isn't the only passage we could turn to. In this kind of situation, God puts it on the agenda long before a crisis does. Secondly, though, the Bible doesn't minimize the issue of death. See, again, in much of our culture, even if death is mentioned or discussed, it's often minimized in a joke or wrapped up, cotton-wooled in sentimentality. You know, death, it's just, it's just passing to another room. They'll be looking down from the stars. Or another way of minimizing it is to suggest it's natural, maybe even good. Well, at least it's over now. Well, it's just the circle of life. They've gone to be with the universe again. The pain's over. It's just matter and molecules doing what they do, minimizing it as if it's not a big deal. But the Bible's attitude to death, God's attitude to death, is radically different to that. There's no hiding from it, faces it honestly. There's no minimizing it, suggesting it's just natural and even a happy thing. Just look at verse 26 of the passage with me. Verse 26. <clears throat> In the middle of the page there, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible describes death as an enemy, an intruder in this world, a terrible thing. 
an enemy of humanity that needs to be put down. Which, of course, for those in our church family who are currently grieving the loss of loved ones or are caring for extremely sick relatives or struggling themselves with life-threatening conditions, this will resonate. This is what we know intuitively, isn't it? Death isn't just a natural process. It's not just moving on. It's a terrible intrusion. It's something we're not made for. It's wrong. It's an enemy. Something that's not right. And actually, the only question about this enemy is, can it be defeated? To which the wonderful news of Christianity, of Easter, of 1 Corinthians 15, the wonderful news is that Jesus Christ has already smashed death to pieces in his own life. And so in the future, he will do that for every single human being who's lived. There will be a resurrection, either resurrection to eternal life for those who trust in Jesus, or resurrection to eternal judgment for those who don't. Or in other words, YOLO is simply not true. You do not only live once. We only live twice. That's the Bible's consistent message. You only live twice. Or yolt, which doesn't quite sound right, but you only live twice. That's point one. <coughs> Come with me to verses 19 to 20, where Paul says, in actual, factual reality, you only live twice. Let me read verses 19 to 20. Actually, I'll get a run-up. I'll start from verse 17, where we started our reading. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We saw this last week. If there's no real resurrection, if Jesus didn't rise, there's no future resurrection, there's no point being a Christian. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, But, here's the actual factual good news, verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. That is a wonderful verse, a verse worth memorizing. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. If you weren't here last week, you won't have heard all the historical evidence, the eyewitness evidence for the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Please go back and listen online if you missed that. But Paul's saying that is a fact in the past which underpins a fact that's coming in the future, underpins a general resurrection. His picture is first fruits. That's a kind of harvest picture. So you've got a field of carrots, say, The first carrot out shows you, that's kind of ripe and healthy, shows you that the whole field is coming. The harvest is coming. I appreciate not many of us live in a kind of rural context. So I guess for us it would be the prototype. The first one off the production line. The proof of concept design that shows the rest is coming. I know resurrection, physical, bodily resurrection a physical life after the graves. I know in our kind of secular culture, to to kind of Edinburgh ears, it it might sound crazy, but it also sounded crazy to Greek and Roman ears, 
back when 1 Corinthians was first written. Look at verse um, 12. Verse 12, this is what was going on in the church. If Christ is proclaimed, is at the top of the sheet, if Christ is, re- is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Even in the church, some of the people were thinking, hang on, that sounds crazy. And the very last verse printed on your handout will, will show why. Uh, they had a problem with what kind of body would uh, a resurrected life involve. Verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? I think that's a common question today. I mean, how's it even going to work? Like, how's it even possible? Uh, what about reused molecules? What age is someone going to be? What kind of body are they going to have? Now, next week, Paul's going to get to discussing how it's possible how God really can pull this off. But this week, he wants to double underline that it's certain. It's really happening. You actually, factually, are going to live twice. Jesus lived twice. He was not YOLO, and nor will we be. And if we can get our heads and hearts around that, as God's people, it will radically change the way we live, the way we feel, the way we trust the Lord. The way the rest of the passage work, um, point two, verses 21 to 28, is going to reinforce that. Um, and let me warn you now, um, some, it kind of takes a deep dive theologically. So there's going to be a bit of concentrating that's needed in verses 21 to 28. And then verses 29 to 34, point three, which will be very short, just explains why that makes the Christian life worth living, the costly life worth living. Let's take this deep dive into three reasons why Jesus really is going to destroy death, not just for himself, that's already happened, but for all of us. I'll pick up again from verse 21. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Adam had a pretty big impact on humanity. Adam introduced death, and it's been passed on pretty effectively ever since. Adam's sin and God's judgment of death at it has spread unstoppably, not to many, but to every. And verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. To put it another way, the day that Adam hit the dust, you saw a a preview of every funeral, every dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But likewise, the day that Jesus burst out of that tomb, you saw a preview a preview that every human being will be summoned from their grave. Every Christian will be raised to eternal life. Notice there is a delay, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there is a delay, a gap between Jesus bursting out of the tomb and all of us doing so. 
But nevertheless, it's the very next step in the plan. Jesus will reign until he has every power under his feet. And just look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we don't see it yet. It's still to happen. But the last enemy to be destroyed in this world is death. When Jesus is returned, death will die. And when that showdown happens, Jesus versus death, I know who'd I back. Because he's already done it once. He's already proven it himself. He's the first fruits, the prototype, the proof of concept. Just as Adam hit the dust, so do we. Just as Jesus returned from the grave, so will we. In fact, actually, we'll, we'll see next week at the end of chapter 15 that my resurrection is actually more certain than my death. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? My resurrected life is more certain than my death because when Jesus comes back, the Christians who are alive at that moment will be instantly changed. That's what we sang about in the last song, an instant changing. Christians who are alive when Jesus returns won't even need to go through the death phase. It's actually more certain. But of course, the delay can make us doubt, can't it? That verse 23, each in his own order, sounds kind of straightforward, but when you stick 2,000 years in there, Christ first, then a massive gap of time, well, we can start to wonder, is the harvest ever really coming? Is it still definitely the plan? Yes, Jesus has proven he can beat death for himself, but are we sure that God the Father, Son, and Spirit are committed to doing this? Is it really going to happen in our world, in our lives? That there aren't going to be kind of second thoughts? Well, one answer to that is God doesn't have second thoughts. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the sovereign creator. Actually, another answer to that is where Paul goes, which is God has promised that this is where the plan ends. See, as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes... God pulls back the curtain to give us a glimpse of where the whole thing's heading. He does that a lot with the cross. He often gives us pictures that someone's going to have to die for the wrong life I've lived, for the way I've treated God and other people. He does that a lot with the cross, whether it's the Passover lamb or Isaiah 53. But sometimes God pulls back the curtain to show us the very end, how things are going to look in the end. Sometimes he shows us the king who's going to come, the king who will rule over the whole world, over the whole cosmos. And Psalm 110 is one of those pictures. It's printed on the back. We had it read as our first reading. Um, I did preach on this in the summer, so if you want to go back and listen to it properly explained in detail, you can, you can go back and listen Psalm 110, despite being written hundreds of years before Jesus, is a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of this amazing king, a king who lives forever, um, a king who's also a priest who's, who um, intercedes for us. Uh, so verse 4, you're a priest forever. So this is someone who lives forever, is resurrected, and is a king and a priest. It's a picture of Jesus. But the verse that Paul's interested in is verse 1. Just look at verse 1 with me of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is a picture of the ultimate king, a king greater than David. This is written by David, and David calls this king my Lord, a greater king than David who sits at God's right hand until all enemies are put under his feet. That's a preview. That's a spoiler tucked into the Old Testament telling you about Jesus to come. And the picture it gives of the final destination of the universe is this human king, a greater king than David, with everything under him, all enemies in this cosmos under him. And Paul picks that up and says, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. We're currently living in the period where Jesus' kingship is contested. There are lots of enemies that don't submit to him. Sin is still a force at large. Satan is still a force at large. And death is still a force at large. But God has said in Psalm 110 that while at the moment you're in the until phase, there is a time coming where everything, every enemy will be under his feet. And so, let me read, back in 1 Corinthians, let me read from verse 24. Then comes the end, when Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. That's Psalm 110 verse 1. The last enemy to be subdued, uh, destroyed sorry, is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 110. It's an amazing thing, actually. On first read, you might think Psalm 110 is just talking about, I don't know, other nations. Nations who are attacking God's people. But Paul says, no, it's much bigger than that. When Jesus turned up and took on the enemies of God's people... He wasn't just dealing with Rome, a foreign occupier at that time. He was dealing with Satan, as we've seen in Mark's Gospel, and even more than that, death. The really big enemies of God's people. This is where the universe is headed. God's announced it. And I realize um, if, if you're kind of not aware of those kind of things, if you're new to thinking about Christian stuff, that might all sound a bit kind of odd. <laughs> but actually in the Bible storyline, Psalm 110 fits right smack middle in God's purposes for the world. So if you've, if you've zoned out a bit, I know some of this stuff is kind of takes some concentration. But sometimes actually just on that, sometimes the deep stuff is what keeps us going in a crisis. Sometimes it's worth working hard to get our hearts and heads around profoundly deep truth. Let me try and help simplify it with some pictures. Here's the Bible story in a few pictures. Here's God's intention for the world. God is represented by the crown, that's God, the king, the ruler of the universe, the creator. And that's humanity who are under God's rule over 
this creation. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, under God's rule, but placed over creation. We're supposed to be kind of mini rulers, under God, over creation. That's God's intention. What's actually happened in Genesis 2 and 3 is we've rebelled against God, refused God's rule over us, thinking we can rule the world better by ourselves. But the little human character with the crown on their own head there is displaced from the world because actually we're not allowed to, to kind of uh, subdue everything when we're, when we're um, denying the creator. That's humanity's rebellion. And the consequence of that, which is what God warned us, the promised consequence is death. That's Genesis 1 to 3. God made humanity to rule the world under him. Humanity refused God's rule, and so God gave his promised verdict, death. Now, I want you to compare the first and the third picture in your mind. The first picture is how the world's supposed to be. Humanity is made for life. Humanity is made to rule the world under God's rule. That's what we're made for. That's what would feel right. The reality we're living in is picture three. And it's not just coronavirus. It's all sorts, isn't it? We are dying in a fallen world, a world of death, because we've rejected God's rule. But then Jesus... Actually, sorry, one more thing before that. Um, Just to say that picture is in Genesis 1 to 3 with Adam. And then it's, you get a rerun of it with Israel. So Israel kind of put back under God's rule, given a place, the nation, and uh, given law to live by. But Israel rejects God's law as a nation and end up suffering the curse of death. And then it's repeated with the kings of Israel. Again, they're supposed to live under God's rule. They're supposed to be rulers on his behalf, but they reject um, God's rule and suffer the consequences But then enter Jesus. Jesus is humanity renewed. In the face of so much failure to live under God over this world, Jesus steps in. God the eternal Son takes on flesh, partly to pay for us to die on the cross, partly to do the job for us, to live under God's rule over this world. That is, he's a new Adam, a better Adam. He's a true Israel. He's a faithful king. And he rises from the dead because humans are made for life. Life was always the intention. And unlike Adam and everyone else, Jesus did not deserve to die. And Psalm 110 was the promise that one day that person would come. A human king who would actually live under God's rule and so actually rule over the world, actually subdue all the enemies of God in this world. Does that make sense? All of us have become victims in this world of the consequence of our sin, trapped under the enemy of death. Jesus stepped in to be the true Adam, the true Israel, the true king, that he might crush death. That's what verse 27 and verse 28 
are talking about. I know it's a bit confusing as you read through, but Paul's basically saying this is God's big plan for the universe, to put things right, to get back to the situation where God is on top with humanity living under his rule. So he's not subjected to the human king, and that's what verse 27 is about. Humanity under his rule, but everything else under the feet of the human ruler. Psalm 110 said, it must happen. Actually, the whole Bible storyline says it must happen. Or to put it another way, death won't win. Death won't have the final laugh. Can't have. Because who's the biggest power in the universe? Death? Sin? Satan? No. The Creator will put every enemy under the feet of his chosen king, his King Jesus. I hope that's an encouragement to some of us. If you didn't follow and want to ask me questions afterwards, please feel free. Um, If you didn't follow and just want something to hold on to, go back to verse 19 and 20. Jesus rose, so we'll rise. In some ways, it's as simple as that. But in the face of a delay, it's worth knowing that God's entire reputation, God's entire plan for his created cosmos relies on everything ending up under Jesus' feet, including death. That's the kind of hope you can bank on. And so, from verses 29 to 34, Paul turns to the very practicalities of how we live day to day. The first one in verse 29 is a bit odd, but then it gets much simpler after that. So these are the practicalities. I've called this point three. This is why costly gospel living, like Paul's, is worth it. See, because we don't actually live in a YOLO world, this is not a YOLO universe where humans only live once. It's a you-only-live-twice universe. That's the plan. That's God's purpose. That's what Jesus has proven. Therefore, costly gospel living like Paul's is worth it. Now, quite what the practice is in verse 29 is hard to pin down. Um, There's about 40 options in the commentaries, uh, none of them particularly convincing. Um, It can't be that... um, that Christians were doing some kind of vicarious ritual, like if maybe if I get baptized, that might help someone else out. I know it, it sounds like it might be that, but it can't be that, because all the way through 1 Corinthians, Paul's been clear that hearing about Jesus is the only way people can be forgiven and saved. He wouldn't have to go around um, proclaiming it if you could just uh, get some back door with a magic ritual in church. So it can't be that. Precisely what it is is hard to tell, but it's clear there was something going on. Um, Possibly it could just be people being baptized on behalf of their bodies, knowing that their bodies are dying. They get baptized as a sign that they're going to rise one day. Could be that. It could possibly be that uh, Christians, uh, sorry, non Christians who've had loved ones died who did believe in Jesus come to their senses. That does sometimes happen. You see a loved one die trusting in Jesus and you realize 
there's something in this. This is real. I want to see that person again. And the only way I will is if I become a Christian, if I rise to new life. It could be that, people becoming Christians, um, having seen their loved ones die. Hard to know exactly what it is, but the point is really clear, actually. Why would they be doing any of this, whatever quiet it is, if there's nothing beyond death? That's the point. Same in verse 30 with Paul's life decisions. He says, why am we in danger every hour? I protest, by brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul's saying, I'm making decisions every day to lay my life down so that people can hear the gospel. Or literally, in Paul's case, I'm risking my life every day to tell people about Jesus. And that's not an exaggeration. Verse 32, when he says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? I think beasts is a metaphor, but he's talking about the riots that happened when Paul proclaimed the gospel. Um, Turns out Christianity was even more unpopular um, back in the day. Paul was willing to stick his neck out, to risk his life, risk his reputation, so that people could hear the gospel. Why? But he, because he was convinced, yolt, you only live twice. He lives twice. So this is his spare life, his short life, his temporary, not so good life, his dying life his spare body, and so he was willing to risk it so that people could hear the gospel. But he also knew that everyone he spoke to lives twice, and so he was willing to take cost to get the message out. What's the alternative? Well, look at verse 32, halfway through. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's point is, if YOLO's true, if death is coming and there's nothing more, well then why wouldn't you just dive in to escapism, to self-indulgence? Grab what you can while you can. That's the FOMO of our culture. Time is ticking, grab what I can. But Paul says, do not be misled. Verse 33, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I think that's just saying, come on, Corinth, you've, just, you've breathed in the culture. You're thinking just like the city around you. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. Literally drunken for some of them, I think. But also just not thinking clearly. Wake up. Do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. You see, if we know that the, that the resurrection's coming, if we know that we're going to stand before our living holy God, well then all the costly decisions he's been encouraging through this letter, the holy living in the sexual arena, the costly living when it comes to sharing the gospel, the generous living when it comes to using your gifts to build the church, all of that cost and pain is worth it. It's actually worth it. And so let's refuse to join in the escapism, the overindulgence. 
Let's not put all our hopes on good things in this world. It's not to say we can't enjoy good things. They're good gifts from our Creator. But I think at the moment we are being shown that sometimes if you put your hopes in whatever it is, the cruise of a lifetime, actually in this world, those hopes are never secure. It might become an absolute nightmare. Seizing the day in this life, it's riddled with uncertainty, but resurrection is certain. Dying to self is actually worth it, because as Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? As Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, because this is my spare life. You only live twice. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts with real confidence that the final destination of humanity is not the grave, but resurrection. And we pray as a church family that would free us to live for others, to take risks, to serve others, to share your gospel, to love people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.